first immediately or you will be subject to arrest. Do it now. A boss ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan. 128 been war, you play Nintendo on some shooters, so put the bridge down and feed us to the killer bees. We get what we deserve, like bury me with my MP3s. Write my manifesto in 72 DPI. Life's just a game, you got cheated, never learned. I write these songs every bridge that ain't been burned. For every cop car that ain't. Welcome to This Is America, January 23rd, 2018. This weekend, people celebrated J20. It was a time of critical reflection and looking back, of celebrating the defeat of a lengthy court battle and the power of collective solidarity in the face of state repression. We also saw groups across the country take part in a call to action highlighting mutual aid and survival programs. Yet at the same time as we speak, there are several important trials which have gone much more under the radar, playing out across the U.S. This includes the ongoing Vaughn 17 trial, which has entered into its second block, and which will decide the fate of a group of prison rebels who launched an uprising early in 2017. For updates on the trial, check out our show notes for links. In North Carolina, anti-racist organizers are also dealing with a series of charges stemming from the toppling of the Silent Sam Confederate statue. In Sacramento, California, three anti-fascists of color still face potential felony charges for defending themselves in the face of the neo-Nazi Golden State Skinheads gang, armed with knives and handguns, who clashed with anti-fascists and anti-racists in June of 2016, sending several people to the hospital. After the bloody clashes, police were found to be working openly with the neo-Nazi skinheads in an attempt to identify and prosecute protesters they considered black liberation and anti-fascist activists. Finally, in Arizona, the first in a series of trials around the no more deaths humanitarian volunteers has concluded, with four people being found sadly guilty of misdemeanors for simply leaving food and water out on public lands on the U.S. side of the border, and for also using dirt roads everyday citizens are supposed to not have access to. In court, Border Patrol agents and others used a wide variety of woke language and arguments to portray no more deaths volunteers as a threat to the natural environment. In this episode, we talk with the supporter of No More Deaths about the trial. While this interview is recorded right before the guilty verdict was read, it still gives you an inside glimpse into the state's strategy, one not based around demonizing the political ideology like anarchism or a tactic like the Black Bloc, but instead appropriating environmental talking points in order to justify policies that result in the mass death of migrant workers. This is also a push that came from key officials within state agencies, as Muckrock wrote, quote, Newly obtained documents have revealed the efforts of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in addition to the U.S. Border Patrol to push for the activist prosecution. No More Deaths is a group that seeks to prevent migrant death from dehydration and starvation by leaving water, food, and clothing in the desert areas where over 3,000 migrants have died en route to the U.S. since 2000. The Intercept obtained documents through a FOIA request with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which show the role that key officials in that office have played in pushing for the prosecution of activists on the grounds that their activities undermine environmental conservation efforts. Next, we switch gears and talk with two people that have been out on the picket lines in Los Angeles during the teacher strike. 
One person is a member of SGV, Mutual Aid Society, and the Black Rose Anarchist Federation, and the other is a substitute teacher that is also a member of the Teachers Union. In this interview, we talk about conditions in L.A. schools, the effects of racial capital's organization of everyday life, the push towards privatization and education, and how the teacher's strike grew into a social strike involving tens of thousands of students not reporting to work or school, strikers pushing back against scabs, mass marches, and students also issuing their own demands, such as police out of public schools, which in some cases students won. At the time that this is being published, it appears that the workers in the administration have reached a tentative agreement and the strike is at an end. However, time will tell if this is the best decision. Already, however, other cities in California and in Colorado and Virginia are also gearing up for strikes in education. So hopefully lessons learned from Los Angeles can also translate to these new sites of struggle. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. This weekend, while groups across the U.S. were organizing J-20 mutual aid and survival events, other comrades were busy defending their cities against Proud Boys and alt-right trolls. In D.C., Direct Action News reports that various alt-right types were seen handing out flyers within the much larger anti-choice march. Uh, D.C. Direct Action News reports, quote, several MAGA hat disruptors joined a few anti-abortion leftovers from the so-called March for Life the previous day in heckling the gigantic women's march. One of them was a confirmed fascist who was present at the January 5th Jovi Val event outside of the White House. They quickly left when Antifa activists started pointing them out and chanting Nazis out, only to reappear at the White House embedded in a MAGA-hatted pro-GOP gathering of maybe a dozen or so. Women's March participants quickly surrounded and isolated uh, GOP and fascists out on the streets, making them almost completely ineffective. In Boston, members of Resist Marxism, a front group of neo-Nazi crews like Patriot Front and the American Guard, attempted to protest and attack the Women's March. Decked out in SS-style hats, they were quickly routed by anti-fascists and driven out of the park and forced to ride home in a police paddy wagon for protection. Meanwhile, in Portland, a mix of about 20 Patriot Prayer and Proud Boy gang members zigzagged around the city trying to start fights with different groups of people while generally harassing the public. They were by and large rebuffed by anti-fascists and counter-protesters. However, the rhetoric around violence and weapons and nighttime attacks is increasing on social media, as well as their attempt at assaulting people. Check out our next episode, which will have a much more detailed rundown of what all happened. You can also check our show notes for links, for videos, and tweets about what all went down. In Miami-Dade in Florida, over the MLK weekend in what is becoming a yearly tradition, BMX and four-wheeler enthusiasts from across the country and the region converged in Florida to ride in an unpermitted motorbike extravaganza in the streets for the annual hashtag BikesUpGunsDown ride, which encourages an end to intercommunal violence in black communities and promotes outlaw motorbike culture. This year, police across various agencies clamped down on the ride, making several violent arrests on the streets and on the freeways while riders fought back, at times kicking police cars and clashing with officers. A protest was also organized outside of a housing complex that local residents are fighting to keep open and stop the eviction of, and it was connected to the larger Bikes Up, Guns Down convergence, and it was attacked by a white vigilante brandishing a gun and yelling racial slurs. You may have seen that on social media. The video is going viral. In other news, Iowak Gainesville continues to hold demonstrations against local government contracts with prison slave labor. In Sacramento, California, local anti-fascists put up posters in the neighborhood of a local neo-Nazi that was involved in the violent stabbing attack in June of 2016. 
In New York, anarchists rallied in support of Anna Chambers in her case against the NYPD. Members of the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement in New York also held a noise demo in support of prisoners that have launched a hunger strike in response to the government shutdown. In Los Angeles, California, a banner was dropped in solidarity with anti-fascists still facing charges in Sacramento, California, for the neo-Nazi rally in June of 2016. Meanwhile, nearby Tempe, Arizona, anarchists dropped a banner against the recent police murder of a 14-year-old Antonio Arce along a bridge walkway outside of a major college. The American Indian Movement, or AIM, held a demonstration at the DOCs in northern Kentucky in the wake of the recent confrontation between MAGA youth and the indigenous rights marchers in D.C. You probably saw playing out on social media. In Pueblo, Colorado, anti-fascists made quick work of Identity Europa stickers, taking them down and replacing them with anti-fascist ones. The Tiny House Warriors encampment is holding strong and growing in the path of pipeline construction. Check out their Facebook for more updates. In Austin, Texas, Confederate monuments were vandalized with anti-Confederate posters. In Portland, Oregon, radical autonomous groups took part in the MLK Day events by organizing student and radical groups to take part in the mass marches. Neo-Nazis were kicked out of a recent Reagan Youth concert. And in L.A., the Anti-Capitalist Feminist Coalition brought together anarchists, autonomous groups under a radical and non-electoral banner for the Women's March on Saturday. In so-called Minnesota, anti-colonial land defense continues actions against Line 3 pipeline and for missing and murder indigenous women, holding a variety of disruptive actions and marches in the last few weeks. Check out their Facebook page for all the action and for photos and videos. Lastly, in a large and dynamic strike you probably haven't heard about, and in the face of the so-called union leadership in the area, over 30,000 workers in Maquiladoras in the area of Matamoros, which rests just at the tip of the southern part of Texas and provides a key link in the global supply chain that makes parts for things like car factories and computers and many other industries in the U.S. are on strike, according to one report in the area where the strikes are taking place. Quote, the area has some of the highest economic growth in the country of Mexico. Its economy is mainly based on trade with the U.S. and is a site of major industrial development due to the presence of the factories in the region. It is a home to 122 companies dedicated primarily to exporting commodities to the United States, including cables, electronic components, parts and accessories for vehicles, textiles, computer products, chemicals, uh, machinery, and other items. Another report wrote, quote, Photos circulating on social media showed deserted factories and union bureaucrats struggling to keep production lines operating after workers put down their tools en masse. Over 50 factories have now stopped production as a result of the strike, costing corporations an estimated $100 million over the course of one week. Workers in the area then launched a general strike, calling it a day without workers. As one article stated, after refusing to show up to work, the auto parts and electrical workers held a massive march through the city of 500,000, chanting, We will win this fight no matter what. The Workers United will never def be defeated. And empty plants a day without workers. Matamaros workers also attempted to make common cause with U.S. workers. As one report wrote, In the course of their struggle, the workers are instinctively seeking to form links across irrational nation-state boundaries. 
The rally was originally scheduled to take place in the town square, but was redirected in the course of the march when workers decided to march to the border, crossing between Matamoros, Mexico, and Brownsville, Texas, so they could appeal to U.S. workers as their class allies. As they were marching near the border, many demonstrators called on their U.S. counterparts to join their struggle, chanting, Gringos, wake up. Workers in Mexico and the tens of thousands are attempting to make common cause with American workers as they know that many of the companies they are refusing to make products for are also attacking U.S. workers and shutting down production in various factories, moving them overseas. Instead of pitting ourselves against each other like the union bureaucrats and politicians propose, like Donald Trump, we should be following the example of the Matamoros strikers and attempting to find common linkages and ways to fight together that hits the bosses where it hurts. That's going to do it for us this week. Enjoy the interviews and be sure to check out these upcoming events. On January 23rd, in Chicago, there's an event about defending the Unistoten camp. On January 25th and 26th, there's the Black Flags Over Brooklyn Anti-Fascist Black Metal Festival. On January 26th, there is an event in Brooklyn, New York, about anarchist participation in the Rojavan Revolution. Also on January 27th, across the U.S., there will be various rallies, but in San Francisco at Union Square at noon, there will be a solidarity rally with Rojava. On February 1st, there will be a hip-hop benefit in Asheville, North Carolina for Blue Ridge Anarchist Black Cross. And on February 2nd, there is an all-out convergence and mass mobilization in Rockstone Mountain, Georgia against the KKK and various neo-Nazi groups. Thanks for listening. We will see you soon. joined here today with Maria, uh, supporter of No More Deaths. We're going to be talking about what's been going on in the trial uh, this week. Starting on Tuesday, there was a rally in front of the courthouse where the trial is going on. And then from that point on, the the trial began. And uh, it's going down, and No More Deaths have both been tweeting out updates uh, throughout the week about the trial. But we're going to talk to Maria about their perspective, about what's been going on, what's been happening, and just kind of a blow-by-blow of what's been going on in court and also their thoughts about how it's going so far. So how are you doing? Good. Great. Thanks for having us on the show. Um, So this week began a first round of trial for us for four of our defendants who are facing charges related to putting humanitarian aid out on Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge. These are charges that stem from subpoenas we got last year. Um, 
and we've been going out to Cabeza Prieta in response to an increase in deaths in that area of the borderlands, the West Desert, which is um, nominally what we call the area that encompasses organ pipe, Cabeza Prieta, um, the gold, um, and also the bombing range. It's one of the areas where we've been consistently recovering remains um, when we go out. So this has to do with basically the an argument about land stewardship. If the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Managers um, are going to recognize that there is a crisis happening on the land that they manage, um, and if they're going to offer any kind of redress or opportunity for us to do the work out there. Um, obviously, since the district attorney has chosen to bring charges against our volunteers, uh, you can see that despite our efforts to be in dialogue with them previously, um, they don't actually want to create any kind of opportunity or dialogue for us to, to do life-saving work on the lands, and they would rather um, see us in court. So um, the basic thesis of the government's position is pretty simple, which is that um, our volunteers did not apply for permits to go out on Cabeza Prieta um, in question to the incident that they were referring to, which happened um, in August of 2017. Um, our volunteers had previously gotten permits to go out on Cabeza Prieta, um, and the wildlife refuge managers actually made a decision to change the permitting language to explicitly uh, disallow uh, the placement of humanitarian aid on those lands. So after that time, our volunteers no longer apply for permits because we had to sign a use agreement stating that we would not be putting food and water out in the desert, um, which of course was the purpose of us going out was to place humanitarian aid in that area because the need is so great. Um, so the crux of the government's argument, um, the actual acts um, of the day are not in contention. Actually, both sides are in agreement that indeed um, volunteers drove out and placed water next to a cattle water catchment and then hiked further, drove down the road and then returned back to an area we called um, Charlie Bell and then hiked water further south and placed it in the desert and then came back and had an exchange with one of the um, one of the Cabeza Prieta wildlife um, law enforcement agents about the fact that they were indeed putting water in the desert. But uh, the crux of the argument is basically about um, not even the acts that occurred, but it, but if, what is the appropriate response to the border crisis on Cabeza Prieta and the um, prosecuting attorney Anna Wright was using the argument that um, Cabeza Prieta has partnered with Border Patrol to place beacons out on the land base and that beacons are an appropriate response to the border crisis and that um, placement of individual water jugs was environmentally damaging to that wildlife refuge so wait so that's that's the state's argument that water basically. water jug placement is is destructive to the environment that water place judgment well i mean the the legalese of it is that that it's abandonment of property that we are driving um restricted roads without a permit um that we did not go through the appropriate procedures 
Um, so, and, you know, interestingly, the basic facts of the case weren't actually that much in contention. Like we definitely admitted that we were out there putting out humanitarian aid because that's the purpose right, of right. our group. And we also did not have um, special permits to drive those restricted roads because those are never made available to us. There has been no opportunity in dialogue with the land managers to try, try to get permission to drive those roads. And um, without access to some of those roads, it, it's an interesting argument. They're saying that, you know, a single vehicle is going to shy the pristine, solemn wilderness of Cabeza Prieta and yet Border Patrol um, uses and has established um, hundreds of miles of roads on on the wildlife refuge. So I think it's interesting that the the re- relatively speaking speaking small impact of humanitarian aid workers driving 0.8 miles down a road that is not designated for non civilian use somehow uh, is more environmentally degradating than the in, the border infrastructure and militarization of that area. So, yeah, but, it, but also by that measure, I mean, we remember very clearly the report that uh, No Desk put out uh, not that long ago that shows Border Patrol agents again and again taking bottles of water, dumping them on the ground, and then throwing the plastic contents back onto the ground. I mean, there was one video that I'm sure everybody saw where they literally walk in a line and one of the Border Patrol officers literally kicks the water bottles and just kicks them so hard the top knocks off and then it just goes down what looks like some sort of hill or something and then it just, i mean they don't go and pick them up they just leave them there i mean if these right. people and, like if the and, state is so concerned about plastic in the desert then why are their officers you know slashing the water and then leaving the contents on the ground i mean it's clear that what they really care about is making it harder for people to cross an arbitrary line in the sand sure and i mean i think some of the um I mean, that's the interesting thing about creating dialogue around a crisis and, and one's response uh, in the media or uh, with uh, our social movements is that, unfortunately, it's very hard to have comparable, honest dialogue in court because the only things you can really discuss in court are things that get submitted through a very, very focused process about what people actually individually saw. So, I mean, there was really highlighted moments in testimony this week. Um, we had the Puma County Medical Examiner's Office come in and talk about recovered remains in the area um, and really establish that there is indeed a trail of death and a crisis happening in Besa Prieta. And we had Emma Cullen, who um, does a lot of our mapping for us, come out um, and show the very precise and dedicated manner in which we have been tracking remains recoveries. And we had um, just a lot of material that, that proved indeed that there is a crisis of, of huge proportion happening on Camisa Prieta, but um, you know, Border Patrol as an institution and an agency wasn't necessarily in, on trial or in question in this particular proceeding because the um, organization that we're talking about really is Fish and Wildlife and the land managers of that um, Camisa Prieta National Monument. And they certainly allow Border Patrol onto their lands um, to enforce because um, acts of Congress require them to. But it was interesting to see um, one of the higher uh, land managers that is in charge of the um, lands, both in New Mexico and Arizona, testified today. And she went on and on and on about being a steward of the land and, and talking about the analysis and policies that she 
um, enacts in order to make sure the land is protected for the endangered species that exist. And then at one point um, in cross-examination, one of our defense lawyers, uh, you know, asked if she knew how many people had died on Cabeza Prieta um, last year, and, and she didn't know the number. And she basically said that that wasn't part of her job description. So it, it's a kind of a, it's a strange weaponization of environmental policy and law. I mean, most of our volunteers have a certain reverence for the desert because we spend so much time there and our desires to provide food and water to folks crossing in the borderlands is not antithetical to our desire to take care of that environment. And um, it came up frequently that we, that we haul out just as trash um, as we're able to. We go in with full packs of water and food and we, and we hike out trash. So, um, but I think what it ultimately comes down to is that Cabeza Prieta is not a recreational um, area for like perusal and enjoyment. It is in fact a barren, bleak land that previously was a bombing range, is covered in unexploded ordinances, is right next to an active bombing range, and fish and wildlife really can contingent with border patrol to try to reduce quote-unquote illegal activity which they feel is detrimental to the environment but really at the end of the day the thing that is detrimental to the border and the borderlands and the native species here and certainly human life is border militarization and enforcement and not humanitarian aid groups putting out food and water so um i don't necessarily think you know the the ultimate truth of of that is not necessarily going to mean that we have any legal victory. I think it will be up, it's a bench trial, so it will be up to the judge. And I think if he plays it by the book, the specific charges that our volunteers are charged with are um, maybe from a legal perspective, not hard to prove because no one in court was ever denying that we were putting out food and water, but there are some arguments contextualizing a necessity defense and a need and also that it was a part of a spiritual practice and part of uh, an expression of religious freedom that may or may not be able to sway um, Judge Velasco. Yeah, I mean, just the, like you said, the weaponization um, of, you know, like, oh, we're so woke, we care about the environment, but yet we don't care about people dying, you know, it's just... I know it's really sickening. Uh, there's there's um, there's been some really great drawings that people from No More Deaths have been doing uh, from the courtroom. Uh, there's one I feel like uh, is really telling. It's uh, the defense counsel asks uh, the CPNWR manager sits alone. Um, Are you aware of migrants dying? And he said, "I'm aware of illegal border crossers dying." Yes. Yeah. And I think that. And- just the way that they frame that is basically saying like, oh, you mean those people that it's okay for them to die because they're illegal? You know, yes, we're aware of that. Right. I mean, it's just very sickening. No, it definitely shows the deep institutional racism of these, um, in, of, of fish and wildlife. Um, and certainly because in Cabeza Prieta, they take on more of a law enforcement role than they would in necessarily other national parks. Um, I think that you can see that reflected and, um, you know, our defendants consistently testified to the spiritual and religious reasons that they're doing work. And it came back to a certain, um, 
you know, just really basic statements like water is life, water is necessary for everyone. We're all made of water. Everything is connected. And people have pretty well articulated reasons that they would like to humanize and reach out to and provide care for anyone that they find in that environment. And then, you know, and again and again, the the um, the folks providing testimony and witness for the prosecution really didn't want to speak to or talk about um, or really address the reality of what's happening in Cabeza Prieto, which is that it's a, it's a veritable graveyard of, of people who um, won't necessarily ever be recovered and whose loved ones will never know what happened to them. And in some ways, it makes sitting around talking about misdemeanor convictions um, just a bit trite, to be honest. I think um, I think one of the things also to remember is that um, Border Patrol has a really destructive narrative that they're like also in the desert saving lives. And this came up constantly with the discussion of beacons and how somehow putting water out and next to or within um, a geographical proximity to a beacon was unnecessary because people could just go to a beacon and press the button and the district attorney um, who was prosecuting um, Anna Wright probably just doesn't know <laughs> that uh, there have been so many um, recorded cases of people not getting responded to when they go to the beacons and they are seeking assistance and help. I mean, we've posted some links to reports that Border Patrol themselves have put out tracking the numbers of how many rescues actually are responded to. And uh, no more that says currently working on a report that's going to come out later in the year about non-response to emergency, emergency requests. So these are when we reach out to Border Patrol and, and we beg them. We, we ask for help in locating individuals when we have information about where someone might possibly be found alive. And um, they're not. They don't follow up. They're not responded to. So I think it's really important to um, bring to light and, and to really understand that these these beacons are not effective. There's also no water at them. Um, and if you go there and you do press the button and no one responds to you for many, many hours or at all, um, then really the land managers are, aren't doing anything about this crisis of death on, on the land. Um, so... In, for example, in 2005 in the Yuma sector, um, there were 21 rescue beacons and they were activated a total of 1,161 times. And this resulted in two rescues. So out of the over a thousand times that someone activated the beacons, they were resulted in two people being rescued. Um, so for... Fernandez, who oversees Cabeza Prieta and a myriad of other land jurisdictions in Arizona and Mexico to call them an immediate life uh, light or lifeline is a profound misunderstanding of how they actually function, or in this case, do not function. For sure. Um, well, just going forward, uh, is there anything you think that people should be thinking about or, you know, any ways they can act in solidarity? Um I'm assuming that probably the decision will come sometime next week, if not tomorrow. Um, I think realistically it will probably come sometime next week. I would be surprised if we have a decision by tomorrow, but you never know. Um, as far as being in solidarity with our work, 
we have really, really detailed um, updates on our Twitter about a lot of the evidence that was presented in court with links to um, other research that we've done about the situation um, on the southern border. Uh, you can also check out our website, nomardust.org. You can also check out the disappearedreport.org, uh, which is a series of reports we put out that are specific to the destruction of humanitarian aid by Border Patrol. And um, also, you know, the border has become internalized and enforcement touches the heart of all of, of our needs, regardless where you live in the United States. So if people feel disturbed and called to act, around these issues that I encourage you to reach out in your own community and connect with the group that are being in active solidarity with um, undocumented and mixed status communities and see what you can do to get involved um, and try to be a part of the resistance to this um, new wave of enforcement. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I also just want to remind people that there will be another trial that someone from uh, No More Deaths will be facing as well. I don't know if you just want to mention that, but uh Anything else that you want to put on people's radar in terms of uh, this case? Yeah, I have a series of trials coming oh. up. Um, <laughs> so um, Scott Warren is facing and will be going on trial in February for related charges, um, putting food and water out in Cabeza, Prieta, um, and some of our other volunteers trying to respond to search and rescue. So you can check on our social media for updates about that. And then in May, will be going to trial on harboring charges and years in prison. And that is an important case to legal perspective because um, if the government succeeds in prosecuting him, it will expand the definition of harboring and it will change. Um, it certainly, it will change a lot of the landscape for um, survival and resistance in the country. So I encourage people to follow those cases um, also, The Intercept has been doing a really good job of covering um, all of our cases. So if you want really detailed articles about what's been happening here, I encourage you to check out The Intercept as well. Yeah, Intercept has had a fantastic coverage. Also, there's a really good Democracy Now! Uh, interview with a couple of No More Deaths volunteers. And actually, or something from No More Deaths and something from The Intercept. Yeah. Yeah, that was just on Democracy Now! last week. So there's lots of ways, uh, whatever you're preferred form of uh, medium is for, for staying updated about the cases and uh, also you're always welcome to check out our website and donate if you're able to. Um, the legal cases have created a certain amount of financial burden for us um, as does the work that we continually do right. so um, that's always appreciated and then just really more importantly than anything um, staying informed and, and staying involved with your own community. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, we're joined here today with two people in Southern California. We're going to be talking about the explosive uh, teacher strike that's going on right now. We have one person that's uh, part of a group that's supporting the strike, and we have another person that's um, a substitute teacher that's part of the teachers' union that's on strike, and they are also on strike as well in solidarity. So do you all just want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is Cameron, and I'm a member of San Gabriel Valley Mutual Aid Society, and I'm also an integrating member in the Black Rose Anarchist Federation. 
And my name is Chrysanthi. I am just got hired to sub for LAUSD. I'm a member of the union and I have been joining them on strike and solidarity. So let's just start with you. Let's talk about some of the reasons that people are walking out on strike. We know that, um, you know, people are asking for a raise. They're also asking for class sizes to be reduced. Can you just talk about um, some of the demands and also the context of people uh, wanting more funds for education in a district where there's more and more charter schools and, and money is, is supposedly harder to find? Yeah, so uh, one of the things the district came back with was meeting the demand for a raise somewhat. So the they've uh, the teachers have been asking for a 6.5% raise. The district came back with a 6% raise. And talking to teachers, uh, you know, on the ground, they're okay with this idea, and they don't want people to think that it's just about this money, that it's just about this raise. Although that is going to help them with the cost of living in Los Angeles. Um, the number one thing I hear the most is class sizes. And I just talking to different teachers, a lot of them, especially in high school, which I would be a high school sub, a lot of them have uh, class sizes of 40. It's not even out of the norm. It's very normal for that to happen. And uh, it's obviously impedes learning. I've been talking to a friend who's been teaching for six years, and she feels like if this doesn't change, she's not sure she can last much longer because it's it's almost impossible to give that kind of attention that you want to as a teacher to that many students in just one period. The other thing is uh, more resources, more counselors, more nurses. The nurses one... Uh, there's a story. So we had a, a really uh, awful thing happen at this school where uh, a 12-year-old girl brought a gun to school and it went off in her backpack and somebody was hurt. Jesus. Um, and the teacher started uh, doing, you know, the first aid that was needed. And he said, can somebody get the nurse? And he was told the nurse isn't here today. She comes tomorrow. And... So that is just a blatant example of what they're uh, that the reasons why you have 30,000 teachers willing to walk off the job and and demand because it, you'd think that would be the law. You'd think that would be part of that would be obvious, but it's something that they actually have to fight for. Um and then the list keeps going down, more counselors, more special ed teachers, so the, the caseload isn't so huge. And definitely something that is extremely important is also fighting against privatization and fighting against the fact that these funds are going to money that could be going to public schools are now going to charter schools. I think it was something like 600 million. And I don't know what the time frame was for that. But that's the number I've been hearing is being siphoned off from the public school system. And, you know, charter schools are a controversial thing. Um, but definitely, it's it's obvious that they, they're not as regulated. And it would just be a better world to have all of those students and all of those schools under the kind of regulation to be uh, the I think the goal of the union is to hire 2000 more teachers instead of having um, that 
to raise enough money to hire that many teachers to open more public schools instead of having it be siphoned off. So there's been a lot of chanting against privatization. That being said, um, a quick aside is that there is a charter school called the Accelerated Schools in Los Angeles that went on strike on Tuesday. And those employees are actually members of the union and the union does support them on strike as they're striking. So there is an acknowledgement that, yes, Los Angeles has an enormous amount of charter schools and some of them are um, providing a quality education. So there's an understanding that what exists now um, is supported for the sake of the kids, but just the fact that it should not expand. It should not continue this rapid expansion, especially when it's being directed by billionaires like Eli Broad and other folks who have their own selfish interests in uh, making that happen. Uh, you brought up his name. Can you just explain who he is and just his background? Eli Broad. What did he get? I mean, I just know he has a ton of money. He has the Broad Museum in L.A. I think maybe he was in real estate. I'm not positive off the top of my head. But he um, has just been a driving force uh, for trying to uh, – grow the charter school industry in Los Angeles. And it, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of different charter schools here. There's ones that were start that was started by, um, church groups and their parents and their families trying to raise money and make it happen. And then there's ones that are more like industries and that have tons of schools all over the network. And, um, but I just know that one of his goals, and I don't know too much about, him, but I just have been hearing his name a ton and, and know that he's been a really big force in trying to make that happen. Right. Well, he's the head of the, uh, the, the school district itself, right? Or the su- school superintendent or. Oh, so Eli Broad is just a billionaire with a lot of money who's trying to make charter schools happen. Gotcha. The actual superintendent is Austin Butner. Also a billionaire. Yes. Is he really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, he is a. Uh, superintendent. He's the current superintendent. He has no education experience. He was an investment banker beforehand. And he was voted in um, after there was this big push to get a lot of charter school advocates on the school board. So a lot of people don't even think that he should be a leader whatsoever. Yeah. And speaking of other teachers going on strike uh, tomorrow on Friday, this is being recorded on a Thursday uh, tomorrow in Oakland, California, there's going to be a wildcat sickout strike. It's already been announced, uh, but teachers will walk out in solidarity with LA. So it'll be very interesting if that strike continues on, becomes you know a full-on strike uh, to see two large school districts in California going off on the you know the same time. Yeah, I think it would be very powerful. Yeah, it would be great to see something similar to what transpired uh, on the East Coast with West Virginia and then rolling through uh, the with the strike wave that, that sort of took place, took off towards the, the end of the year last year. Having something similar happen here on the West Coast, I think, would be uh, really fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, just one other larger context question. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, would understand, obviously, especially if they have kids in school. But I mean, the fact that there is, for instance, you know, not a nurse on campus. I mean, I've seen uh, different clips on things like Vice and stuff where, 
the uh, if there is a school nurse or if they're there only for a day, like they won't even have, you know, for say like an office, they'll have to use, for instance, uh, you know, a bathroom or, you know, the janitor's closet. And, you know, they brought up stuff like, for instance, you know, like, you know, I have to tell a kid that they have, uh, you know, they have a medical issue or that they might, you know, be pregnant or something like, you know, I can't really do that, you know to the best of my ability in a janitor's closet or in a bathroom. Like I don't even have access to a space, but I think most people would realize that this is a problem, that there's not like essential staff, uh, on, on these sites. How did we get here? Like what structurally within this system allowed it to get to this point or the fact that you were saying like 40 kids in the classroom, which is just, I mean, I don't even know how you can pack that many kids in a class. Yeah, I think one thing that's happening a lot, um, and I don't know the exact details, but there was some law passed a couple of years ago that allows charter schools to be co-located at the same location as public schools. So you'll have a public school campus, but one side will be the public school and the other side will be the charter school. And so that automatically cuts off building resources and takes away student attend student attendance, which takes away funding, which compounds the problem even further. And um, so that's the first thing that I think about. I know that LAUSD, I mean, talking to folks who've lived here and who grew up here and went to school in the 90s, it, it has it's had its problems for a while. And I can't speak to the mismanagement that happened. There's been a number of scandals throughout the years where we spent a billion dollars on iPads in 2012 um, when... You know, there were windows that were broken and, and classrooms falling apart. So there's there has been a lot of mismanagement um, and it's just being compounded now that there's an active privatization movement now. Um, well, let's switch now to the, the strike. I mean, you just want to talk about what the last couple of days have been like. I'm just curious, you know, just kind of the feeling among people. I mean, this is a very vol- volatile time, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of anger at Trump. There's, uh, you know, the shutdown is happening. We're seeing uh, people across the U.S., you know, launch sick outs. Um, you know, this just seems to be kind of like one other thing that's kind of like thrown into the mix. And I'm just curious, you know, what the feeling has been like. Uh, you know, the first day there was uh, people are saying upwards of 50,000 people on the streets. So if you can just tell us what it's been like. Well, it's funny. I mean, whenever you talk to Angelinos, they really hate the rain and want to hunker down. But every day that it's been <laughs> pouring rain, people have been out there. We've got ponchos, red umbrellas. Um, there's, I mean, people know why they're out there. And it's, and, uh, officially people are told you can show up at seven for the picket line, but there's actually, uh, there's a lot of encouragement within the union and within teachers to come at 5 a.m. So we could actually, uh, talk to the folks who are coming in, the administrators, the scabs, the workers, and just remind them before that they drive in to remind them about this movement. And, uh, and, you know, in the case of scabs, let them know that we're going to remember that they're coming. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd, I'd say similarly, as someone who's sort of uh, outside of uh, the the union itself and outside of uh, working within the profession, uh, since Monday when the strike was launched, uh, 
again, with the weather being a factor, there was some anxiety on my part, um, seeing or, or hoping that the, the energy that existed on Monday wouldn't peter out over the course of the week. But from what I've seen participating, um, like in the, the past few days, it's the, the pickets have only grown. And every time I'm there on a picket, uh, or marching, there's new people that I haven't seen. Um, and it's, it's, you know, there's the energy continues and is only growing, it seems. And, you know, as far as we know, or what we were told is on, even on the first day of the strike, um, LAUSD lost somewhere between 15 and $20 million because of, uh, the fact that, that less than or more than 60% of students didn't show up. Um, and the number slightly increased the second day. And then yesterday the number, uh, uh, increased again. So fewer and fewer students are showing up, which hurts the, the, the district's, uh, pocketbooks. And, um, from local reporting from like news stations that I've seen talking to parents and polling parents is that, um, they are mostly taking their students, their, their kids out of school in solidarity with the teachers. Um, so it's not just sort of like, you know, they don't want to deal with the hassle. They're, they're actively supporting the, the strike and they're actively supporting the demands of, uh, the teachers who are engaging, uh, in the strike. Do we have any idea of how many, like what the percentage of, of children that are actually attending the school now is? I'm trying to remember. I know something like 150,000 out of 600,000 students. And I think that was even only on Monday. Yeah, it's yeah. it's very low. Like I said, uh, the what we heard the first day was that only about uh, – uh, it was only about, I think I may have misspoke earlier. It was only about 40% of students who showed up on Monday, um, with 60% not showing up. And then that number has continued, uh, to, uh, basically fewer and fewer students are showing up as time goes on. So, uh, there is, you know, it seems like there is growing momentum rather than, than what I was talking about with petering out momentum. The, the opposite is happening. Um, the, the shockwaves of the strike are uh, increasing in impact. Not to mention the students who have been joining the picket line, either with their parents. And then uh, I we weren't present for this, but there's a group called Students Deserve. And uh, one of their focuses is uh, fighting against militarization on the campus, fighting against um, increased campus police and pat downs and all and targeting and everything. And they actually had our, uh, their own rally separate from the teachers on the same day on Tuesday in front of the superintendent's office at the LAUSD building. So there is a ton of student support as well. Yeah, and we should also point out that, uh, you know, large majority of the students we're talking about that are impacted by these high classroom sizes and everything else are in black and brown communities. And um, I'm just curious, can we talk about uh, their demands, because I know that there's, there's, for instance, a viral video that's out right now of students uh, protesting, I believe, at a school board meeting where they're, they're demanding that cops be taken off campus. Can we talk a little bit about that? I don't know if either of us knows that much more than you do, but 
I mean, it's well, I know that one of the tenants that was also included in something that teachers are striking for is to be specifically designated sanctuary schools. And even though politicians and the superintendent dances around it and says, of course, we would never let ICE on campus. Um, the truth is that there really isn't anything in place if that were to happen. And any attempts to make that happen have not really been met yet. So I know that that's one of the tenants for sure. Awesome. But it shows, I mean, if, if, if lots of students aren't, I mean, more than half, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, it's moving beyond just a strike by the teachers, but something that's, you know, a community and, and more of a social strike. Um, you know, students are on strike as well in solidarity, which is amazing. Cause I mean, that's a huge financial hit. Every kid that doesn't show up, I mean, that's money lost by the district. It is, yeah. Uh, like we mentioned, it, the reporting has been thus far that the the school district is losing, you know, every day that the number stays steady above, you know, uh, what it has been with the with the number of kids showing up. The, the school district is losing millions of dollars, um, and that you know puts them uh, in a difficult position. Uh, puts them in a weaker position when they come back to the bargaining table. Um, so clearly. There is recognition, and the, and the students recognize their uh, position within this strike, um, their economic position within this strike, and how they can best affect uh, the outcome of the strike. Um, both the students and their parents are, are, are willing to not show up so as to put teachers in a better bargaining position. We're going to talk about uh, interactions with scabs in a second, but I'm curious uh, to you, um, what has the role been of, of outside groups? I know groups like uh, DSA have organized like mutual aid things like with free tacos and stuff like that. I mean, you all are on the picket lines. How have different groups uh, played a role in supporting uh, the strike, either in positive ways or I don't know if you've seen in some sort of like negative ways at all? Right. Yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned, I'm a member of an organization called San Gabriel Valley Mutual Aid Society. Uh, the San Gabriel Valley is a region that's uh, a bit to the east of uh, the city of Los Angeles. Um, it's still within L.A. County, but it's outside of the city limits. Um, and we're an organization that primarily does local organizing, neighborhood organizing, um, but we also see it as being necessary to intervene in social struggles like this, uh, labor struggles, and uh, provide not only mutual aid, but, you know, expand the scope of the struggle. So what we've been doing locally is gathering supplies, uh, which include like hand warmers because of the weather, uh, ponchos, again, because of the weather, um, lozenges, because, you know, people are on the picket yelling all day, uh, food, coffee, and we've been going out to the, the picket lines and uh, providing uh, teachers and others who are on the lines with those items um, so as to make their lives a little bit easier because, you know, marching in the rain for three or four hours a day is, is a pretty difficult thing. Um, so in addition to that, we also have, you know, shown up physically and participated in the pickets ourselves. Um, a number of our members have done that. Um, and so, yeah, that's what San Gabriel Valley Mutual Aid Society has been doing. Um, there have also been active members of, uh, the Black Rose, uh, Los Angeles local who have participated, um, in much a same capacity. Um, we have been involved in the struggle, uh, in the lead up to the teacher strike. So we, uh, screen printed a number of, uh, uh, picket signs 
that uh, were designed by uh, a teacher uh, named John Fleischner uh, in Milwaukee and um, who's a member of the IWW. So we screened a bunch of these picket signs and we handed them out during the pre-strike, the lead up to the strike. Um, And we've continued to hand them out uh, during the strike. Um, And in addition to that, we've also been, we've been primarily operating both Black Rose and San Gabriel Valley Mutual Aid Society. We've both primarily been operating in the Koreatown uh, neighborhood of Los Angeles. And within Koreatown, there's also an organization known as the Koreatown Popular Assembly um, that has been very active in uh, doing rapid raid response to ICE raids um, and doing other local neighborhood organizing. So we've been uh, organizing alongside them to support the pickets and, uh, you know, bridge again the labor and social struggles uh, together so that in the future, um, you know, there's not as much of a chasm between those two things and there's not as much of a, uh, you know, a situation where these two groups of people don't know one another. Um, and so in the future, you know, teachers may participate in rapid raid response or, uh, you know, we'll continue to, uh, we will continue to support teachers in, in whatever struggles they engage in, whether it's a strike or something else. So there's been, you know, a lot of involvement from different organizations, both specifically anarchist um, and, you know, like you mentioned, uh, DSA and International Socialist Organization have also been on the ground with providing free food. Um, and, you know, we've gotten along pretty well with those folks. And, you know, we've uh, we've worked alongside them to, to provide mutual aid to the teachers. Um, I wouldn't say that there's really been any kind of uh, reactionary element that I've seen other than the scabs. Um, I haven't seen anyone, any group in particular come out and try to uh, mess with the pickets or anything. But um, again, we've mostly been operating uh, in the Koreatown neighborhood. So I don't know if that is different in, um, in other parts of the city. I know that there was one video that was taken of somebody who is allegedly a scab um, yelling at a picket uh, who she basically said from her car, you know, um, she started saying, build the wall. Right. Um, right. Something about yeah. Trump. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that was, that individual it, it seemed as though they were a scab, but as far as other organized reactionary groups, we haven't seen any of that luckily. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, let's talk about the, um, the interactions with the scabs now. I mean, this seems to be kind of like the, one of the most contentious things with the police. I mean, the police have threatened to arrest people. Um, you know, these scabs are being brought in as subs. Uh, they're being offered, you know, they're being paid uh, more than they usually would. So they're basically being enticed to come in and break the strike. Uh, can you just talk about that aspect of the struggle? Yeah, I definitely. Um, so what happened was there's a lot of charter schools here and there's a lot of agencies that have uh, sub agencies for them. So what happened, the school district actually got one of these agencies to give them all of their subs that normally serve charter and private schools. 
And um, so then these are outside subs that don't have a relationship with teachers already. They're not within the union. They're not part of the public school system. Because in terms of those subs, like myself and other folks, there's, uh, there's an article that came out about all of the support because subs see the same conditions that the teachers do. So we uh, haven't been hearing too much about subs that are already in the union, that are already plugged in. Being the scabs, it's these folks who are outside of the district. And um, it's hard for me to say who is who. I actually wasn't um, near the parking garage on the days that I was there, and that's been where the main focus was. I was at a different entrance. But um, can you speak a little bit to that? Totally. Yeah, so uh, today what we saw uh, in front of the parking garage, starting around 6, um, scabs started arriving in cars. Um, and from my understanding, they've been having to arrive earlier and earlier every day um, because of the amount of time it takes to actually get into the parking garage because of the picket. Um, yesterday morning, uh, the police... Uh, intervened in a way that was was pretty rough with the picket um and they told uh uh teachers and supporters that if they continued to picket in the driveway of the parking garage that they would be arrested or cited um and uh they they were told basically uh the police told the the picket line if you at all picket on this driveway um you're going to be arrested regardless of of if you're going to move out of the way for the scabs or not, like we're going to arrest you if you pick it on this driveway, um, which then subsequently led to the National Lawyers Guild observers filing a complaint with the LAPD, which, you know, that has seemed to uh, push LAPD slightly back on their heels. And what I witnessed today was that uh, the picket uh, this morning, which was around 15 to 20 people, uh, around 6 a.m., uh, there was scabs showing up. Uh, LAPD would allow uh, the picket captain to go up and talk to uh, the scab, the scab in the car, and ask them to not scab. Um, give them a letter um, explaining why the teachers were on strike and asking them to stand in solidarity with the teachers and. If the scab wanted to continue to come into the school, um, LAPD would then, you know, intervene and and um, basically push people um, off of the picket, um, off to the side, so that the scab could drive into the driveway. Um, and that was basically what happened throughout the morning. Um, there was, you know, times when a number of cars turned around. Um, when cars showed up, people would chant, "Turn around" or "Reconsider." And there were uh, here and there some individuals that did turn around or reconsider. But uh, for the most part, the, the people who appeared to be scabs were pretty intent on getting into the school itself. Um, and one of the things that the scabs have been doing, um, which was interesting, is that uh, so cafeteria workers uh, have been allowed through the picket lines, um, mostly because they were off for the break and they get paid hourly. Um, so some of the teachers at, at the school site that I was at um, were, you know, hesitant, but OK with the with the cafeteria workers coming through the picket um, because they're, you know, low wage hourly workers. And some of the scabs have been uh, recognizing this and putting, you know, printed pieces of paper in their car windows saying, I'm a cafeteria worker, let me through. 
And uh, luckily, because there are teachers from the school sites at the pickets, they recognize, you know, uh, who is actually a cafeteria worker and who isn't. And so if they're if the individual trying to get through is not a cafeteria worker, um, we give them some more grief um, uh, and we, you know, do as much as we can without, you know, having the LAPD arrest us to prevent the, uh, the, the scab from getting through. Um, I wouldn't say there's been really many physical altercations or anything like that. Most of the scabs trying to enter the school have done so through the parking lot. Um, there haven't really been many direct confrontations with LAPD other than, you know, some slight like bumping into one another and, and yelling here and there. But, um, as uh, up to this point, there hasn't been any like direct altercations or anything like that. Um, you know, we've heard that the last time there was a strike, uh, from teachers in this district is like 30 years ago or so. And, uh, this seems to be the case with a lot of, uh, people that have gone on strike and just the fact that people don't have that collective memory per se. I mean, they might remember something like the LA riots before they could remember, you know, uh, the last time, you know, the teachers were on strike. Has that had an impact, like, with people just, like, basically having to learn these things or, like, having to come up against, you know, the fact, like, oh, like, if we want to keep these people out, we're going to have to physically, like, push back against the cops? Um, and just how has that reality kind of played out, have you seen? Definitely seen different strategies or different. I've talked to a teacher who um, was the forefront of really trying to be more understanding to the cafeteria workers, whereas the first couple days that I was there, there wasn't that understanding. So that's kind of evolved over time. And um, I wish I, I could speak to the 1989 strike. I'm sure there's some teachers out there who were part of it as well. But I think the teachers, uh, I, I don't know, at the site that we're at, the teachers are very well organized and they're very clear on what they want. There's a apartment building next door in which some of the, uh, just two of the tenants were upset about the noise. And, um, but we know, you know, everyone was like, we know our rights. We know we can start chanting at seven. We're not, this person does not represent the community. We represent the community. So there's a lot of incredible organization and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of incredible organization and everyone is very resolved in what they're doing. And so far as collective memory goes, I would say definitely there are teachers on the lines that I've been part of that were there in 89. Um, and their resolve has not been changed whatsoever. You know, they, they, I think have been integral in providing the context for, for this struggle, for the younger teachers, for the newer, newer hires. Um, and I think that they've been, you know, they've, they've been really necessary to, to say like, Hey, you know, we won in 89, we can win again. Um, and we're going to keep going this time. So I think that, uh, in terms of strategy with, with pushing back on the cops, um, and things like that, uh, it, 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 it all plays into a broader strategy. And I think that, uh, militancy comes with, uh, context and with strategy. So at the moment, you know, the, the important thing is maintaining the pickets themselves and, uh, maintaining a visible presence and ensuring that, uh, you know, students and, 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 and parents alike recognize that the, the strike is ongoing and that, um, it's, it's still better to keep them out of the schools, uh, for as long as possible. So, 
yeah, so we'll see if anything, you know, hopefully, of course, we don't want anything to escalate in a way that is detrimental to, uh, you know, the safety of teachers and people on the pickets. But um, I think that as time goes on, there there is a possibility of people getting, you know, more flustered. I don't know. I think but I also think that people are, are pretty, uh, pretty cool headed. Everyone I've seen. Like uh, Chrysanthi mentioned, every, everyone I've seen at the school sites, especially the one I've been at, um, have been very cool-headed and very highly organized. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's no no chaos or anything like that. Um, it's it's a high level of, of labor organization. Uh, well, just looking forward, I mean, what kind of work would you say, um, you know, needs to needs to be done, or you know, needs to continue forward to? Uh, to see the strike through, like what are the goals that you all have uh, going forward? Is it just to continue with the same momentum? Is it to get more people out to the pickets? Uh, you know, what would you say the major steps forward are? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say just continue the momentum forward because there's already been such a huge impact by starting to picket lines in the rallies. And definitely the rallies have made a big impact, jamming up downtown with all of the teachers from all the districts coming together. Um, I have not heard anything of, of, you know, updated actions because the plan is it's perfect in its simplicity. Just be there when the kids show up, be there when the kids leave, have this presence. And, um, I know nobody, you know, the teachers don't want to strike. They have to strike. So the thought of this going on for weeks or, or days is a difficult one. Um, but speaking to the site that we're at, uh, everybody is committed to it so that they can get back to work. They're doing the, this for the kids, of course. Yeah. And I'd say, uh, in terms of folks who are listening to this, that may be in Southern California and want to plug in. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to plug in and I, there's stuff going on all day, every day for the duration of the strike. Um, like Chrysanthi mentioned, there are pickets that start usually around five or six as early as you can get to them, um, at almost every school site in, uh, LAUSD. So if you live somewhere in LA, in LA, like you don't have to come to Koreatown where we're at, you can go to any school site and there's going to be a picket. Um, and then in addition to that, there are also uh, uh, large scale marches that converge mostly at LAUSD headquarters in downtown LA. Um, but there have also been, you know, other demonstrations that have jammed up the traffic in downtown LA. And those usually take place midday. Um, and then as students get out, the pickets resume at the different school sites. So, you know, there's stuff to plug in to do uh, all throughout the day. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to, to try to commit to at least participating in, uh, one of these actions, whether it's a picket or a mass demonstration. Um, and then, uh, as far as like continue, continue organizing, continuing organizing goes, you know, I know Black Rose is definitely committed to continuing, um, not only to organize in solidarity, uh, but to organize from within um, the the not only the teachers movement, but the labor movement more broadly. Um, we have Black Rose members who are uh, teachers in West Virginia. We have Black Rose members who are teachers in other locations that work um, in education. Um, and of course, you know, we have uh, Black Rose members who are uh, part of the Burgerville campaign up in uh, the Northwest. 
Um, we're, we are directly involved in these struggles. We're not only participating from the outside, we're participating in them and, um, we're building a more militant labor movement that can help, uh, us in building popular power. So I would say, you know, if, if you, uh, can participate in LA, do participate. And if you are somewhere else, uh, let's hope that a strike wave kicks off and you can participate as well. Um, so I would say that just we have to keep on keeping on in terms of the, the continuing organizing that we're doing right now. Awesome. Anything else you want to say in closing or any other parts that we didn't hit? There's nothing that comes to mind. Um, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak on the situation. Yeah, thank you. Oh, of course. Yeah, thank you for taking time out to talk to us. I mean, uh, definitely there's a lot of people watching this and uh, – you know, it's it's just exciting to see this happen, and, and hopefully uh, teachers will continue to take more and more control over the struggle into their own hands. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us, and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.